Uh, the first reading tonight is taken from Psalm 117, um, and you can find that in your Red Bibles on page 616. So that's Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. The second reading is from John 18, verses 33 to 38, and can be found on page 1087. So that's John 18, 33 to 38. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is the truth, retorted Pilate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much for that, Ruth. Why don't we pray as we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to come together. We pray that as we uh, come to your word this evening and as we think about this issue of truth, that you would help us to take something useful away. Where I say something that's complete nonsense, Father, would you help us to forget it? Where I say something helpful that glorifies you, would you help us to grow nearer to you through it? Father, we pray as we think about truth now, you would help us to draw nearer to you the truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we've said, we're looking at truth tonight. And we're going to look at it in three stages. What is truth? What does the Bible say about truth? And why does it matter? But firstly then, let's crack on with what is truth. And the Collins Dictionary has a really unhelpful definition, set of definitions for us. The truth about something is all the facts about it, rather than things that are imagined or invented. Well, that's helpful, but look at number two and three. If you say there is some truth in a statement or story, you mean that it is true, or at least partly true. And number three, a truth is something that is believed to be true. So a a truth is what is true. So that's really helpful, Colin's Dictionary. Um, But maybe a slightly more helpful way to look at it is, is to break it down into three groups Firstly, you have objective truth. This is probably the easiest for us to get our heads around. It's something that is true to all peoples of all cultures and ages, whether they recognize it to be true or not. So an example would be gravity. You may have never heard of gravity, but it still acts. It's still there. It's still true. A second type of truth is propositional truth. 
It is a proposition that claims something to be true. So take this one. Here's an example. See if you can guess where it comes from. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a proposition that claims to be true, claims to be obvious, but that could be true or false. Propositional truth. Where's that from? Superman. American Declaration of Independence, 4th of July, 1776. That's a proposition that claims to be true, but could be true or false. Finally, we have subjective truth. Something that is true based on our subjective feelings. This room might feel cold to you right now, but hot to me. So if you were to say, wow, it's really cold in here, that is subjectively true in the sense of it is true to you. You are actually cold. And if you'd said you were hot, you would be lying. But it's not true to me. You see the difference? Subjective truth. Very different from objective truth or from propositional truth, which claims to be objectively true. So, we've got three types of truth. Objective, propositional, subjective. But at this point, it's always helpful to throw a spanner in the works. And it's really helpful for us to hear about this man, Michel Foucault. Oh, oh, we've got a hurry from someone down here. As you can see from the black and white photo, this guy was writing in the 60s and 70s. And he has been incredibly, incredibly influential because he is where we get our modern idea of truth as power from. So even if you've never heard of this chap, whose name I probably pronounced incorrectly, he, you will have heard of his ideas, whether you realize it or not, because he has this idea of truth as power. And he called it pouvoir savoir. It's pronounced Frenchly, which is power knowledge. Power knowledge. And he says this is a type of knowledge that is considered common sense truth. If you asked Joe Bloggs on the street, Jane Doe, she would say, oh yes, that's common sense. Of course it's true. But Foucault says that it's actually created by people or institutions of power for their own interests. Truth as power. Power knowledge. And basically, we have to think of it like this. Power, and now you've got to think whoever power is in this situation, what they do is they establish what a truth or what he would call a norm. Something in society that that everyone is forced to believe is true. And Foucault says this is especially successful when that truth becomes widely accepted in a culture. He says it becomes institutionalized. And when that truth is institutionalized, it becomes a part of people's common sense. The obvious truth, the natural truth, of course, that is true. Now, Foucault, connecting power to this kind of truth, wasn't speaking into a vacuum here, despite his you know, cool, 
cool looks. Others had said similar things. And Foucault himself was observing what the world was already doing. We can take, for example, the Cold War. The Soviet Union wanted its people in the Soviet Union to think that central state control of the economy was common sense truth. Whilst, on the other hand, the United States, well, that wanted its people to think that free market capitalism was common sense truth. If you believe the other thing, you must be a brainwashed idiot. You see how it works? The power in each place wants its people to believe that something is just true. Of course it's true that capitalism is the natural way of things. Of course it's true that state control is better for everyone. But Foucault put it in a way that became extremely attractive to academics. Ironically, considering he's French, he's not actually been as popular in France as he has right through the English-speaking world. And academics took what Foucault said, they developed it, they mixed it with the works of others like Jacques Derrida and his deconstructionism. And in the process, they have changed how the Western world thinks about claims to truth. Generally, we call this whole way of thinking that has been developed post-modernism. And perhaps you've heard of that. And it's behind a lot of the thinking that has gone into movements for social change in the West ever since. In fact, many would say it's been eye-opening. It's helped them to see how the world is really one. It's brought liberation by allowing them to challenge powerful institutional structures that favor some at the expense of others. But it's also had two consequences that it's really worth looking at tonight. And I promise we will come on to the Bible. But just come with me here, just as we go a little bit further on this, because it will be helpful for us as we look towards what God says soon enough. And we could put these two consequences under the heading, creating a post-truth world. Firstly, this line of thinking, this trajectory of thought about power and, and truth, has caused the creation of a deep mistrust of authority, a deep mistrust of authoritative claims to truth. Paul mentioned that at the beginning, didn't he? BBC Verify, Fact, all of these organizations trying to rectify that. But if you think about it, it makes sense. Of course people would be distrustful. Because if power uses claims to truth to entrench its power... Well, how can we trust what anyone says is true? How do we know what is true and what's just a power play? This has led many people away from listening to the mainstream media, towards less conventional ways of getting their information, ways that naturally vibe with however they think to begin with. And social media, of course, has helped that. It both fulfills that desire and actually ends up amplifying it as it goes. And we've seen this, haven't we, spiral out in all directions. Because academics might have initially used this to challenge one or two things they didn't like, but it's taken on a life of its own across 
the political spectrum. And we shouldn't really be surprised by this. After all, when we say that things aren't objectively true, but instead are just an enforced norm by the powerful to keep people in line, well, who decides who the power is that benefits from ensuring what the norms are? And who, who decides what those norms are that aren't really true? What are the norms that need to be challenged? Who decides that? Of course, what we've seen in reality, especially over the last 10 or 20 years, is that both sides of the political spectrum have their own answers to those questions. And of course, whenever you take out one norm, well, you replace it with another that will in turn be challenged. That leaves a vacuum that needs to be filled. And so it goes on in a never-ending story. So that's the first consequence. But another consequence, and I wonder if you've, you may, this one may not be as obvious as the first one in the world around us, is that we've elevated that subjective truth. You remember that truth that it's cold to me but not to you. Our, our feelings, really, and, and how we feel about things. We've elevated that to the level of propositional and objective truth. Because we've become so deeply skeptical of any authority and any authoritative claims to what is true and what is not, we instead turn to things we can feel, the things inside us, our emotions, and we lift them up. For example, Fern Cotton, the old Radio 1 DJ, has written a book. Look at that lovely front cover. Speak Your Truth. Connecting with your inner truth and learning to find your voice. Now, I'm going to be honest, I've not read it. It's pretty cheap on Amazon. You can get it from there. It could be a great book. I don't know. But there's a review there by Vex King, which I found really helpful. Now, Vex King himself is the author of Good Vibes, Good Life. And his review of Fern Cotton's book is most enlightening because he says... During a time where misinformation is spreading faster than ever and people are finding it hard to keep it real, Fern shows us the power of living in our truth. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because what's Vex saying there? He says, I've seen problem one and the answer to problem one is problem or consequence too. I've seen that what's happened is people don't believe mainstream truth anymore. They've rejected claims and so misinformation's everywhere. The answer to that is to elevate our subjective truths. So to defeat consequence one, we must embrace consequence two. Now, this might, might, work for us as individuals, and we'll look at that a bit more later. But one question for us to think about right now is, how do you organize a society when you've rejected authoritative claims to truth, and you say instead that 70 million people can each have their own claims to truth? And how do you do that without it causing major frictions in society? So in fact, why don't we stop and chat for a minute? Does anything I've said make any sense? Maybe not, that's fair enough.
Can you think of examples of where we don't trust authorities or where we elevate my truth to the level of objective truth? Why don't you turn to each other and just chat for a minute about that? Where examples of where we don't trust authorities or where we elevate our subjective feelings to the level of objective truth. Go. Let's come back together. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? He stood at the front. Objective power. Um, maybe you're thinking at this point, come on, Jack, we're at a church. I've come to hear about Jesus. But all we've heard about is Michel Foucault. Fair enough. And so we're going to move on to what the Bible says. What does the Bible say about truth? And where does the Bible say it can be found? And we had in our reading John chapter 18, where Jesus comes before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and proclaims that he has come to testify to the truth. We saw Pilate's sarcastic reply, what is truth? And perhaps you were surprised by that, maybe the first time you read it. How could Pilate have said something so refreshingly postmodern? <laughs> How did Foucault fall into his lap? Well, if Foucault fell into Pilate's lap, it came in a Zeusian thunderclap. Because postmodernism is not really as postmodern as all that. The ancient world was not all the absolute truth claims of Plato and Aristotle. It was a world of syncretistic religions, where a plethora of gods from all different cultures were mixed together in a great Mediterranean and Middle Eastern melting pot. The Roman Empire itself is a perfect example of that. Wherever it spread, it just took the local gods and added them into their pantheon. Their gods were violent, abusive, liars. Why not chuck in a few more? And you know, if the emperor says he's a god, well, sure, we'll burn some incense to him and add him in as well. What, what's one more liar to add to the pile? It won't hurt. In light of this, each area of the empire, this great empire, in many ways, one of the biggest the world had seen, or that area of the world had seen to that point, each area of the empire had its own moral codes, its own culturally conditioned do's and don'ts. In the ancient world, an empire couldn't, like a modern world, drop in a truth that everyone had to believe. It, it didn't work like that. It didn't have that much power. So it let people continue to believe their own cultural ways of doing things. As long as it didn't get in the way of their ability to make money and to keep control, people could do whatever they wanted, by and large. And one of the big reasons that the Jews in Jerusalem and the surrounding region were a problem for the Romans was that they absolutely would not go along with the program on this. They couldn't join in this. They couldn't worship other gods. They couldn't live like everyone else. And a big question for us tonight is, why is that? And the answer for us is because of their faith. They believed in one creator God who was truth absolute truth. They said if God is the creator and upholder of the universe, who has also deliberately and consciously made it all to a plan and design, then, well, within all that, under his sovereignty, 
what he says to us must be true. Not subjectively, objectively true. And so anything to the contrary of what that creator God says must be false. It can't be partly true. It can't be a little bit true. It can't be subjectively true. It is false. And it cannot be true for me and not true for you or vice versa because God has made us both. He has made everything in all of creation. He is equally the source of all truth and all goodness and all light for both us and the whole of creation. Let's just repeat that because because it's really important. They said truth is found in God. And so all his words are precious, all his words are true, and all his actions are completely faithful. Because to be faithful is to do what you've said you're going to do, is to be true. And the whole of Psalm 119, that great psalm, is founded on this. But here's verse 151. Yet you are near, Lord, and all your commands are true. Or verse 160, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Or let's go out of the Psalms into Proverbs. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is flawless, without flaw, perfect and true. Or Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. Or our tiny, teeny psalm from today. The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And so, theologically speaking, the Jews saw that that truth is that which is consistent with the mind, the will, the character, and the being of the Creator, God. And so when Jesus, the Son of God, stands before Pontius Pilate and says, to quote, in fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. He's saying to Pilate, who believed in this very postmodern way of thinking, saying to Pilate that there is authoritative, objective, absolute truth, and that he himself is testifying to it. Now, of course, Foucault in mind, you can look at the power dynamics there if you want. Who's going to gain from Jesus claiming such a thing? Well, here's the governor of the greatest power in the world questioning a poor provincial prisoner. But it's the poor provincial prisoner saying that there is truth and the governor saying there isn't. And Christians are called to follow Christ, of course. And so Christians have always said with Jesus and against Pilate that there is authoritative truth found in our authoritative God, found in the one who made us and who made everything there is, the one who speaks 
with an authoritative word, words that are faithful and true. But Christians go further than this because Jesus doesn't just claim to testify to the truth. He claims to be the truth, the word of God. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of what, anyone? Grace and truth. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Not the way to the truth. I am the truth. So Jesus isn't just testifying to God's true word. He's saying that he is God's true word. He is the truth. And Jesus says when he goes to be with the Father, well, he will send the Holy Spirit to his people. And when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all truth. John 16, verse 13. And so we see here that the Father and the Son and the Spirit together speak and are and guide us to the truth. Isn't that amazing? It it kind of blows my mind a little bit. And so here's top theologian Augustine in his book, De Trinitate, which is the Trinity, on this. Come, see if you can, O soul weighed down with the body that decays, burdened with many and variable earthly thoughts, come and see if you can. God is truth. For it is written that God is light, not such as these eyes see, but such as the mind sees when it hears, he is truth. God is truth in a way that the creation can only point to, but that we cannot even fully comprehend because he is the source of it as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But okay, we're near the end now. Maybe I lost you six hours ago. Why don't you turn to each other again? Does that make sense? What objections might someone have to what Jesus claims for himself? Or what objections do you have? And why does it matter? Turn to each other again and chat. Does it make sense? What objections do you have or might have? Why does it matter? Let's draw ourselves together again. Maybe there's more to chat about later over a cup of tea and coffee. That question, why does it matter, is is an interesting one because maybe you've just heard me whittering on and you think, this is what a waste of time. And, you know, maybe. But why does it matter? Why should a Christian not just jump on to postmodernism? How can Christians expect to be different here in this postmodern world? Well, Vex King, author of Good Vibes, Good Life, just a reminder, was right that we live in a world where misinformation is spreading faster than ever. Living in a post-truth world has opened the gate 
for authoritarian states to act with impunity, for politicians to lie with impunity. Now, of course, let's not be naive enough to think that didn't happen before, but it's made it much easier now. There's far less ability to hold them to account because everything is able to be masked in post-truth fog. Chucking things back. Well, how do you know that's not true? Well, they're wrong, even if they are an accredited organization. Similarly, the culture wars are so bitter because the post-truth world, compounded by, of course, social media, has pushed people to the extremes. There's less common ground because all the foundations of society are being dug up, deconstructed before our eyes by both sides, by the way. I always think British values are a classic example. If you ask 10 people to list all the British values they can think of, you'll probably get 10 different answers. And if you look at American politics, well, you see that we've come off pretty lightly so far in comparison. In that post-truth world of misinformation, there's nothing for us to root ourselves in as a society. No ethics or morals that we can know to be true, solidly true. No lasting comfort for us, no hope. We simply drift forever, slowly disintegrating until we die. So Vex was right about all that. It creates a confusing world. But Vex is wrong to say we find the answers to that problem in our own subjective feelings and emotions. And I want to say that that's true even on an individual level. And this is why it's important for Christians to think about this. Because even at the best of times, to take that into account, to say our subjective truth is as important as objective truth, has to assume that we are all basically inherently good. We all have completely trustworthy emotions. We can always trust our emotions to be telling us only healthy and good and true things. And can we really say that? I wonder, yeah, thinking of yourself, would you say that your emotions have always told you the truth? And that's in good times, but what about in those toughest times, those darkest moments of our life, times of deep pain and sorrow, where our emotions and feelings go all over the place. Relying on the truth our hearts tell us then, well, it would be like trying to stop ourselves falling out of a plane by grabbing onto the tea trolley. The reality is it's just coming out with us. And so we bounce around aimlessly until we die, In a world like that, with our ever-changing emotions, there is really no hope to grasp onto. Nothing firm, nothing solid. But Christians have good news for, for a chaotic, questioning, and hopeless world. We have truth for our lives, rooted and grounded as they are in Jesus, the truth. He is the anchor for our soul. That's Hebrews 6, 19. 
And so in Jesus, we won't be blown around by everything that comes our way. When times are hard, we can come and find rest in him, not relying on our emotions, which are going all over the place. Instead, we can come to the one who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And when our days are over, we have hope, a firm hope. A hope the world, tossed as it is by misinformation, thrown overboard by relying on subjective feelings, a hope that is simply lacking. There are words used at the graveside that have been used since at least 1559, written by this other top theologian, Thomas Cranmer. Words that you may have heard, you may know. Ensure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the truth, we have a sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. God's truth and God's faithfulness has been a source of comfort for Christians for 2,000 years. Think of these words from the great old, hymn, great old hymns. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. There is no changing. You are true. The Lord hath promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. As Christians, we have a firm foundation to build our lives upon. What we believe, how we live in the world, and where we put our hope. All of them are sure and certain because of the truth. The truth we have in and through Jesus our way, truth, and life. What a great message of hope for a questioning and weary world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in truth is hope. We thank you for that sure and certain hope that we have of the resurrection to eternal life. We pray in a world that is so battered and bruised by misinformation, by the chaos of our emotions, you would help us to be people who are able to hold on to you, hold on to your truth, and that are able to hold out that hope to others. That the Lord Jesus would be a hope for so many people in Manchester and around the world. Lord, thank you for that hope. And let's close with Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in him, so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.